Well, we are in the midst of the Christmas season, obviously, with just a couple of days to go. And uh, there are certain words associated with the Christmas season. This is a time for you to, this is the audience participation part of the message. How about that? Certain words that are associated with the Christmas season, such as shopping, right? You associate shopping with Christmas. What are some other words that come to mind? Just kind of blurt out a few here and there. Words that are associated with Christmas. Let me, uh, let me hear a few. What's that? Cheers? Cheer, Christmas cheer. Okay, well, there could be, it's like bowl season too, you know, so it's like cheers, I guess you, you could do that. All right, another word? Eating, there you go, all right, eating, that's a good one. Another one? Jesus, there we go, all right, that's first. It took three or four to get there, but we finally did hear, we did hear Jesus. Another one? Decorating, all right, you got lights. Uh, how about debt? Uh, there, there's one for you, spending and debt or eggnog. How many of you are eggnog, people, you enjoy eggnog, you, yeah, I'm one of those, and uh, there you either like it or you don't. You either love it or you hate it. I think I could probably go that far. Christmas music, you know, you, all those things associated with Christmas. But really, what we don't often associate with Christmas are theological things. You know, Christmas often for us is about feelings, and it's about traditions, and many of those things are good, obviously, but we don't often bridge that gap. We don't take that step to tie in doctrine and theology to what we celebrate at Christmas, and that's very, very dangerous. Now, I understand. I've been preaching a long time and and, uh, doing this for a while, and I understand that if you typically mention the word doctrine, for example, if I were to come up here and I were to say, today we're going to be taking the next half hour to examine a message on doctrine. Most of you would probably just check out. You would be gone. You'd be working on your menu for uh, Christmas. You'd be working on your shopping list. You'd be doing all kinds of stuff. You would check out. Why? Because we don't often spend time on doctrine. We don't spend time on theology, and that's a shame. And the reason, I think, for that is that many times we don't attach doctrine to the everyday details of our lives. We don't attach theology, which is the the study of God. It's all that is. We don't attach that to the everyday details of life. And we treat doctrine and we treat theology like something that's stuffy or something that's boring. And man, that should be the furthest from the truth. Most of you probably don't enjoy reading medical textbooks. You probably, in your leisure time, don't sit down with a big fat medical uh, 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 textbook and begin reading through that. But if you're diagnosed with a medical condition, you're probably going to be going online or you're going to get one of those books. You're going to be reading up on how it relates to you. Why? Because there is a personal attachment at that point. And for us, when we look at theology, when we look at doctrine, what we have to understand is that there is a personal implication. So this morning, I want to look at a message that, atta- that, that attaches itself to Christmas, obviously, but one that you don't often hear about. It's doctrinal in nature, theological in nature. And what I want us to look at this morning is a message simply entitled, The Virgin Birth. The Virgin Birth. There's a theologian named Millard Erickson who uh, has made the comment, and I think I would agree with him. He says that outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth is the most contested event in the life of Jesus. In other words, if you were to take a room and you were to pack them full of people, and you were to place in that room those who, who uh, believe Scripture to be God's Word to us, that it's without error, and you are also to put into that room people who don't believe that God's Word is Scripture, they don't believe that it's truth, they believe it's maybe inspired in spots, or maybe they don't even hold any of it, they just see it as a book written by man, and you were to put them in that room, if you were to put people in there that have been Christians for a long, long time, and if you were to put in that room people that don't have any idea of who Jesus even is, there would be a significant number of people in that room that would completely disagree with the notion of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. It is the most contested event in Jesus' life on this earth outside of his own resurrection. 
However, Scripture tells us an awful lot about the virgin birth of Christ. It makes it very clear to us about its nature, about its purpose, about its reason. And what I want us to look at this morning is I want us to look at a number of passages of Scripture. I'm going to walk through some of the New Testament. We're going to pull in a couple of Old Testament passages as well. And I want us to look at what Scripture says about the virgin birth of Christ, but at the same time as well... During our time, I want us to connect some some dots, and I want us to look at some of the implications of why the virgin birth of Christ is so important, that it's not just something that you hear about only in scant references and Christmas carols, that it has a direct implication in your life on at least three levels, and I want us to look at that this morning. So taking a look at the virgin birth specifically of Jesus Christ. So flip over with me to the book of John chapter 1. I want to start there. Uh, We're going to look at a number of different passages. If you don't keep up with me, uh, just at least jot them down. You can look them up later on today. Some of them I'm just going to read. I won't have you turn there. Again, you can jot those down. But let's start here in John chapter 1 as we begin to look at the virgin birth of Christ and then draw some implications from that as well. John chapter 1. One. John's gospel is obviously the fourth gospel. You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So his is the fourth gospel. It was the latest gospel that was written. And whenever we read the gospel of John, starting in the first chapter, we find that he jumps into the person of Jesus Christ as quickly as he possibly could. In fact, look at what it says here. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word. It's a reference to Christ. We'll see that in just a moment. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Look down to verse 14. He says, And the Word became flesh, that's a reference to Jesus, and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what John is saying here is that Jesus Christ Himself is the Word, that he chose to dwell amongst us. In the Greek language, that word dwell means to tabernacle. In other words, it means that Jesus Christ, God himself, pitched his tent right here among us. He tabernacled, he dwelt among us. And then look at what it says in verse 15. It says, John, that's reference to John the Baptist, testified about him, and he cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me, Because John the Baptist was born roughly six months before Jesus. He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Now here's one of the things that we need to be careful of when we speak about the coming of Christ. We talk about that first Christmas, so to speak. We have to be careful that we don't assume that the the birth of Jesus was the beginning of Jesus, because it was not. In fact, the Bible makes it very clear here in John's own words, in verse 15, makes it very clear that Jesus Christ is God himself. When Jesus came to earth, and we'll call it that first Christmas, though we don't read of that in Scripture. When he came that first Christmas, it was the arrival of God in an unmistakable fashion. God the Son chose to come, though he existed before time began. He is eternal in nature, without beginning, without end. He made his grand entrance, so to speak, as we read of in the Gospels here on that first Christmas. John makes it very clear that he has existed before time itself even began. This was prophesied, by the way, by Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. It talks about how the virgin would conceive and give birth to a child, that his name would be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so 700 years even before Jesus would come, his arrival would be prophesied by Isaiah himself. John would capture for us so clearly that when Jesus came, born of a virgin, that it was the the arrival of God himself. Well, let me get you to flip back one book uh, uh, earlier to the book of Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. So when we think, all right, so Jesus has come. He's arrived on this earth. He's made his grand entrance. 
How did this happen? Born of the Virgin Mary. How on earth did this happen? Well, the Bible makes it clear. Thankfully, it explains to us that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 1 begins to help us to understand this. Look at chapter 1 of Luke, verse 26. It says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. Verse 27. It says, To a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement. She kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall name him Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, Well, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And so the Bible makes it real clear to us that this was no ordinary birth. Mary, young Hebrew girl, most would agree she was in her teen years at this time. Betrothed, which was a ramped up version of our modern day engagement. Betrothed to Joseph, but not yet married. This virgin teenage girl would give birth to the Savior, conceived not in the natural fashion, but of the Holy Spirit. A few weeks ago, I was riding in in the truck with with Hannah, my oldest. Hannah will be eight next month. And in the course of conversation, I can't remember what we were talking about, she she said, Dad, it sounds a lot like Jesus and God are two different people. And I said, honey, you need to talk to your mom. (laughs) No, I didn't say that, even though her mom could have given a better explanation than I could. Trying to explain the Trinity to a seven-year-old, almost an eight-year-old, much less to another adult, is difficult business. But her question is a legitimate one. One theologian said in regards to the Trinity, try to explain it, you'll lose your mind fail to receive it and accept it, you'll lose your soul. Jesus himself, God the Son, chose to come. And he chose to come in a way unmistakable for us. He chose to come in a way unparalleled. His birth was announced by angels. It was prophesied by prophets. It was uh, 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 worshipped by wise men. This was unlike anything in history. And what the Bible makes clear is that its nature was miraculous for very specific purposes in our lives let me show you something else here if you flip back a little bit further to the book of matthew chapter one these are easy to remember john one luke one matthew one look at matthew chapter one i want you to notice something here that again helps us in a in, at least in a subtle fashion to understand the nature of jesus's arrival born of the virgin mary conceived of the holy spirit he chose to come in unique fashion for us uh, look at what it says matthew chapter one Verse 1. Now, this is capturing for us the genealogy from, from uh, Joseph's side of the family, the genealogy of Christ. In Matthew, the book of Matthew, written by Matthew, obviously, was written primarily, originally, to a Jewish audience. Now, for the Jews to read Matthew's letter, so to speak, called the book of Matthew, for the Jews to read it, they would need to be convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. 
And so it was important for Matthew, writing to a Jewish audience, to trace the genealogy of Christ from the line of Abraham, right? Any Jew would have been familiar with Abraham. Uh, They would have understood that Abraham was the key to their relationship to God from their understanding. And so whenever they would see the genealogy of Jesus traced from the line of Abraham, this would have been significant for them. And so let's begin reading here, chapter 1, verse 1. This is probably, honestly, these 15 verses are something you probably skip over, like most of us tend to do. But there's something we're going to miss if we do that. So let's begin, chapter 1, verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. You're going to begin to see a pattern here. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amenadab, Amenadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth and Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. I could keep going if you really want me to, but what you'll find there is much of the same thing. It's a tracing of genealogy. And the, the, the verbiage that's used here, the wording that's used is consistent. That such and such was the father of such and such, who was the father of such and such. It just traces it all the way through. Well, let's just skip up to verse 15. Because there's going to be something subtle, but man, just so interesting. We're going to see here. Verse 15 says, Eliud was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph. Now you would expect in verse 16, after 15 and a half verses of this, right, that it's going to say, and Joseph was the father of Jesus, right? And that's kind of the, the, the pattern we're creating here. But that would not have been completely accurate. And God's word is without error. You see, Joseph was not the father of Jesus in the way these other men were the fathers of their sons. And Scripture even clarifies that for us. Look at what it says again, verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. And so the Bible is very clear, whether through Isaiah whether through John or Matthew or Luke or elsewhere, that Jesus, God himself, chose to come, born of a virgin. He, he invaded life as we know it on this earth to make a difference for us. The Bible records this as literal historical fact. So what are the implications? We've kind of laid the foundation here. So, so, all right, Brooks, let's step out of doctrine. Let's step out of theology. Show me where the rubber hits the road. Help me to understand some of the implications of all this for my life. Otherwise, this is just dusty facts for me that I might not be able to, to, to clearly communicate to other people. Help me to see how this impacts my life. Let me give you three implications, and we could give many. Let me just give three for the sake of our time today. Number one, the virgin birth introduces us to the Savior that every single one of us need. It's the virgin birth that introduces us. Again, Jesus existed before time. He's without beginning, without end. But the virgin birth introduces us in a way that is brand new, not through the words of a prophet. It introduces us in a brand new way to the Savior that every single one of us needs. Think for a moment. You stand before God. You have sin that has characterized your life for as many years as you've been on this earth. And you stand before God one day. God is perfect. God is holy. God is just. God is right. God is good. Everything about him seems to be everything that you and I are not. 
in and of ourselves. And imagine that you stand before God, and you're in his presence, and heaven is on the line here. I mean, your forgiveness, you getting into heaven or being sentenced to hell is on the line. And this is a tense moment for you. Imagine what it would be like standing there before him, knowing that your sin has not been paid for, and that you stand condemned before a God who is holy and who is perfect who has all right, all reign, all authority over your life, and there's not one thing that we can say to argue or to convince him to let us in. Here's the good news. is that though we are sinners, Christ came and he died for us. He came as our sacrifice. Hebrews 7, we won't go there. Hebrews 7 talks about the sacrificial nature that Christ made when he died on the cross for us. In fact, all the way back in the Old Testament, all the way back in the Old Testament days, starting in Leviticus, what, you, what do we read there? We begin to see that there was a sacrificial system put in place. The high priest would enter the Holy of Holies one day a year, the Day of Atonement. He would offer a sacrifice an unblemished lamb in in the place of the people of Israel. And that sacrifice would cover over, not wash away, it would cover over the sins of the people of God. But that sacrifice, which was needed because of the the ugliness of sin, we often toy with sin. Uh, We we don't see it the way God does. God sees sin as, as, uh, uh, he abhors sin. He he sees sin as as heinous. He sees sin as, as absolutely despicable. In light of his own holiness. We often toy with it. God sees it vastly differently. That sacrifice was needed because uh, uh, Scripture tells us in the book of Hebrews that, um, uh, that forgiveness is absolutely impossible. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no forgiveness of sins. There has to be a sacrifice that's made. Jesus Christ would come as our sacrifice. But unlike every other sacrifice that had been offered, this sacrifice would be perfect. Without sin. Without blemish, without spot, without stain, absolutely perfect. Jesus himself is God. God's nature is that of complete and utter holiness, complete and utter perfection. Jesus came, born of the Virgin Mary, 100% God, 100% deity, just the sacrifice that we need. But there's also another element to that. He was also the substitute that we need. Because a sheep can't take Brooks's place because Brooks's sin is vastly different than that that a sheep would do. I mean, I need another person to take my place. I, I scour the, you know, the landscape. There's not a person in this room, not another person I've ever met that could be a rightful substitute for me. Why? Because it doesn't matter if every single person in this building were to die in my place for my sins, you as a sacrifice are unsatisfactory. Why? You're not a suitable substitute for me. You are not perfect. There would need to be another person like us given perfect in nature 100% God perfection 100% man substitute and only one fit fit that need and his name is Jesus Christ and on that first Christmas born of the Virgin Mary it was the introduction in unmistakable fashion of the Savior that you and I desperately, desperately need. There's a second implication to the coming of Christ, to the virgin birth. The second implication is this, that the virgin birth is a reminder to us that our salvation is supernatural in nature. It's not something we do. 
<laughs> you know, when we get to heaven, for those of us who have a relationship with Christ, you know, we're not going to be slapping each other in the back and talking about, man, this is how I got here. You know, I almost missed it, but then I did this, and man, I made my way in just before the gate closed, and I was, you know, there'll be none of those kinds of conversations. Now, the virgin birth reminds us that our salvation is supernatural in nature. There's not one thing we did to earn it. There's not one thing we did to secure it. All we did was respond to the invitation of repentance and faith. But it was God who did the work. It was God who paid the price. And he paid it. All that got put into motion uh, uh, on that first Christmas whenever Jesus was born of a virgin. Here's what God did. He chose to step outside the realm of natural law that he had put in place. Now, there are people that contest the virgin birth. Why? Because they, they, they don't have a place for miracles in their framework of understanding. There's no place for miracles in, in the way they understand life as they see it. But we can't afford to operate that way. God consistently operated outside the natural laws that he put in place. We call those miracles. Now, the axe head did float in the Old Testament, didn't it? Yeah, the Red Sea truly was parted. That was a miracle. Jesus did walk on water. That was a miracle stepping outside the, the confines of natural law. A miracle in miraculous fashion. God often operated. And we see in Scripture, in the pages of this book, that many times God operated outside those natural laws. He, 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 uh, he performed miracles that were unmistakable. And whenever Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, that obviously was had never been done before, never been done since, operated outside the laws of nature as God had put them into place. And yet, in miraculous fashion, he chose to come. And whenever we read in Scripture of the virgin birth of Christ, whenever we capture Luke's account, Matthew's account, whenever we read of how Jesus made his entrance into this world as we know it, and we're reminded of the virgin birth of Christ, it should instantly ring a bell of the grace of God that, man, I could never be right with him outside of a response to Jesus Christ. And every time we sing about the virgin birth, in songs like Silent Night. Every time we come across them in the pages of Scripture, instantly it should remind us that I am saved only because a God loved me enough to even perform the greatest of all miracles, so, so to speak, to come and, and to, to make his entrance on my behalf. And we cannot afford to discount the virgin birth of Christ. We can't diminish its value. We can't discredit it because it's miraculous in nature. If we discredit it because it's miraculous in nature, we may as well cast out the resurrection of Jesus as well. And if we do that, Paul already made it very clear that if we discount the resurrection, we are all without hope in this world. The virgin birth reminds us. If we have a relationship with God, that we've turned from sin, placed our faith in Jesus Christ, (laughs) that is a supernatural event. You know, we don't... We don't have to understand all the, the way that this unfolds, but listen, it is not natural for Brooks Kale to choose to give my life to someone else. I mean, I'm a selfish individual, and I like to be the one who makes the decisions for me. And it, you're probably much the same. It is unnatural. Only God, speaking to the deepest part of who we are, could compel us and draw us to relationship with himself. That is a supernatural event. And your response to the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation is evidence of that. The virgin birth reminds us that our salvation is supernatural. gives us all the more reason to praise God for who he is. Then number three, and we're done. What's the third implication of the virgin birth of Christ? The virgin birth of Christ ensures hope for the Christian, hope for the believer, in every circumstance and in every situation. There's not one circumstance that could come in your life There's not one situation that you could face as a believer that you are without hope in this world. Roughly two weeks ago, 
I got a text of the events that were unfolding in Connecticut with the, sco- with the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary. Everyone here is familiar with that. Yeah, I don't often watch television and, and cry, but I wept that day. Standing in front of that TV, watching the news unfold, all I could do was weep. After those events unfolded, you began to hear more news reports. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't watch. Five minutes, ten minutes, I had to change the channel. Reading the paper, I had to turn on to another section. You much the same. Nothing good about that circumstance at all. Nothing. Every line had been crossed. I mean, after all, senseless violence, unexpected in nature, absolutely tragic, involving children at Christmas time. The list goes on and on and on and on of the tragic nature of that. But you know what dawned on me after that event? Is that though it is a tragedy and though hearts will break for a long time for those that were impacted most closely from those events, is that in heaven today are 20 little kids that will never be separated from the presence of God. That's the hope. And for all those family members who have relationships with Jesus, there will one day be a reunion when they themselves, because of their faith in Christ, step through the entryway to heaven, and they stand before God, and they hear, enter in, well done, my good and faithful servant. And they're not only reunited with their Savior, but they're united as well with their little ones because of the grace and the mercy of God and a virgin birth of a Savior named Jesus who put it all into motion. You know what, Christian? You are never without hope. And it never matters how badly things get or what you've lost or what you've been through, that because of your relationship with Christ in the darkest of days, listen, I'm telling you, there is hope there. (laughs) And it all started because of a miracle and the coming of Jesus just for you. You know, in my family, when I was a kid, we had certain traditions at Christmas time, as probably many of you did. One of our traditions that we would have was going on Christmas Eve to Kmart at midnight on Victory Drive, where the Home Depot sits today. My dad and my mom and me and our family, we would travel down to Kmart. It was country come to town. And I would go back to the back, and I would get me one of those, uh, you know, tall things of pudding and, uh, you know, the four-week-old cherries on top and the whipped cream. And you remember those at the Kmart? I don't know if you ever had that pleasure, but I would get me one of those. And, and uh, my dad would do his Christmas shopping on Christmas Eve at midnight for the blue light specials. And I don't know if you remember this or not, but they would actually take a blue light, and it was situated on, a, on a, uh, like a 500-pound-looking rolling bench. And off of that bench would come a, a post, right off the top of it, and on top of the post was the blue light that would rotate. And there would be a poor lady, a clerk that worked there, that particular, for some reason, she drew the, you know, the, the, the longest stick, I guess, to have to work that shift. And she would take that blue light, and they would announce across the store, in five minutes, there will be the next blue light special. And in five minutes, she would go pushing that cart through the store to the next item that was about to go on sale. And there would be a mass of people behind her. At the front of the line would be my dad. 
And we're coming back behind them, and we're traveling, trying to keep up. And in an instant, that blue light would stop. And say if it was on winter coats, and I'm talking like 45 seconds, there would be no coats on any rack whatsoever to be found. There would be coat hangers all over the floor. That poor clerk's eyes were as big as saucers, seeing what just unfolded before her very eyes. It was absolute hysteria, chaos, and then and just a mess. In like 45 seconds, and if you were to wander into that scene after it had finished and the blue light had gone on to the next area, like sporting goods or something, if you were to wander up to that, you would say, man, something significant happened right here. You know, that first Christmas, it would not have been readily apparent at first because Mary was just another teenager, seemingly having just another baby. But as time would unfold, and those shepherds would begin to show up, they'd have a story to tell. And they'd be talking about what they had seen and what they had heard. And before long, you would begin, after a couple of years, to see the visitors called the wise men come, bearing gifts from a land that most had never even heard of, gold and frankincense and myrrh. As time unfolded, it would be clear to everyone that something significant happened that night. That it was no ordinary baby. This was a Savior, born of a virgin. Your salvation was at stake, but it was secured when he came. It was solidified when he died and rose. And the whole reason you're a believer today, if you are, is because God's perfect, miraculous plan which brings hope in every situation started that first Christmas so Christian when was the last time you really thanked him I'm talking from the gut for coming just for you and maybe for you you've never made that choice to give your life to Christ how much longer are you going to wait before you realize that your sin can be paid for because a perfect sacrifice was also your perfect substitute. And he stands ready to take over your life if you're only willing to give it. Let's pray. Lord, there's a lot packed in to Christmas that this world often completely misses. Lord, even sadly for many believers, many Christians, these kinds of details are overlooked and Lord, we never think to really, from the gut, to thank you for coming for us. You didn't have to. Lord, there was no law implemented that required that you give us a second chance. Lord, the moment mankind sinned in the garden, you could have completely been done with us. You were not required to give a second chance. It was your love and your mercy and your grace. Lord, that we can't fully fathom this side of eternity that drove you to send a Savior you knew it from the beginning, mind-boggling, God, that before you even created Adam and Eve, you knew what their creation would cost you. It would cost the death of your own son, and you made them anyway. Lord, how infinite is your love for us. How deep is your grace. Lord, it would take Jesus all the way to a cross, but yet again, stepping outside the laws of nature that you created, you performed yet another miracle as he rose again, proving himself to be God. 
And so, Lord, this Christmas, we thank you for our Savior. Lord, I thank you that my life is not the same as it used to be. Lord, I thank you for my hope that I have. For no other reason but that you live in me. And Lord, the virgin birth is what introduced you for the very first time, really, to us. And so, Lord, I pray for decisions all over this place this morning. Lord, the implications of you coming as you did go on and on. But I pray for those believers here this morning that are hurting and that are struggling. Lord, that they would see that you coming for them brings hope. And yes, the hurt is real. Yes, the challenges that come are very real. The trials that we encounter are very real. But Lord, you are bigger still. Lord, your plan is perfect. And the day will come when we've stood before you for a million, million years that eternity has only begun for us. And we'll be ever more grateful that you came like you did. And Father, I pray for those that don't have a Savior today. I pray for them that right where they sit this morning, that they'll make the greatest decision they'll ever make, the only decision they'll make that will last forever, that they will turn from their sin, that they would own it and confess it to you. But Lord, that they would also, in that same instance, that they would receive Christ and invite him in, believing that he's God, that he died, that he rose, that they would invite him in to forgive them of all their sin and to take over their lives from this day forward. And so, Lord, bless our decisions. Whatever's needed, Lord, Give us the courage to follow where you lead. And we praise you for what you'll do in Jesus' name. Amen.